speak in this room. Um, it's uh, one of the great pleasures of life, um, and uh, I'm delighted to be here. And the, the, the group, I've spoken to the group before, but not recently, so I'm delighted to be able to come back. Um, I'm not going to talk about the law today, um, except, of course, that I'm going to be talking about its context more than the law itself. Um, I've, myself, I've, I've sort of arrived at where I am at the moment with, um, first of all, I suppose my first academic discipline of choice was history. Um, I then moved into sort of that vague sort of ground of politics, law, international relations, international law, and so on. And one of, the, one of the things that I very much like about what I do is that I, all of these things have some relevance uh, to the law that we have to think about and we have to assess and we have to persuade people to comply with. And I don't think it's possible, really, to look at the sort of law that I'm going to be talking about today, the, law, the human rights law, but law in general at sea, without some knowledge and understanding of the other things that go to influence it. Um, so what I thought I would do is, before talking about the NGO that I'm a part of, uh, Human Rights at Sea, and what we're trying to do, and what um, is wrong with Human Rights at Sea, and what is wrong with Jurisdiction at Sea, is I thought I'd take us back in time a wee bit, um, because I think, and, and this is a, 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 it may well not be the case with you today, but I think an awful lot of people come to their particular choice of law with probably a law degree, um, in the UK certainly, and I know that in other um, countries it's usual for law to be a postgraduate degree rather than a, an undergraduate degree. Um, and. I think there's a certain lack, certainly amongst my own students, and I, I'm not um, saying that this is necessarily the case with you at all, but there's a, there's a tendency to focus principally on the law and not on its context. It's to spend a great deal of time looking at article so-and-so of such-and-such such a convention and deconstructing it and trying to decide what it means. Um, with some understanding of the backdrop, some understanding of the, understand, uh, of, the, of the context, I think the understanding of the law itself is, is that much easier. And I'm sure this is, this is not anything new to you. There's another thing, and I've just seen Patricia arrive. Hello, Patricia, who knows far more about this than I do. <laughs> um, there's another thing, and, and I said this when I last saw Patricia in, in, in Iceland two or three weeks ago. I also have benefited enormously from being the age that I am. Uh, I first went to sea as a naval officer in 1971-1972, and that's actually quite a long time ago. Um, it's before, for example, the Third Un Unclosed Conference even got underway. And the sea and the environment we're talking about the ocean environment is a very different place today from what it was then. And I think one of the things that I've benefited greatly from, and there are those of you, I'm sure, who are um, extremely um, capable analysts of the law and its backdrop, 
Um, I have benefited from time. And I, I must say I bring an awful lot of that perspective to bear on what I'm doing at the moment, which is essentially writing a book about what I'm speaking about. I, I think it's really quite important to go back some time to see what the context is that we're having to cope with. And I chose a while ago now to actually go back about three or four hundred years. Um, and I started to analyse what I now refer to frequently as the Grotian era, which is a period from, in round figures, and I know round figures are never satisfactory from a historian's point of view, from about 1600 to 1950. 350 years of a period, the Grotian era, uh, after which we have either moved already into something else, or actually I prefer to say that we are moving into something else, another era. There's a tendency to see the 1982 UN Convention on the Law of the Sea in terms of Law of the Sea issues as you know, fundamentally a very important document, which of course it is. I think we're only halfway there, though, um, to where we are probably going, and it's important to reflect on what is possible and what is probable into the future in order to resolve some of the problems that we have today. What do I mean by the Grotian era? It's a, it's a remarkable period of time. It's a period of time that was dominated by the European maritime-based empires, the emergence of the state system as we know it today, this so-called Westphalian system. I'm not sure I entirely agree with the uh, makeup of that Westphalian system as such, but certainly the, the state system, uh, centralised states, um, the European um, maritime imperial expansion following on the era of exploration, although there was a considerable overlap between the two. The world was getting a little bit more globalised, but not very much. <coughs> Um, population was increasing, but not very much. Technology was developing, the beginnings of the sort of development that we saw increasing <coughs> markedly from the Industrial Revolution onwards. But generally speaking, the 350 years that I've been looking at, the Grotian era, the era before that which we're going to focus on more later on this morning, was an era that was very much associated with the notion of free seas, the freedom of the seas. Mary Liberum, you'll all be familiar with this terminology. Grotius, of course, published his short pamphlet in 1609, part of a much bigger work that wasn't discovered until much later. Mary Liberum was its title, and I use the title of that pamphlet to describe that era because I think it's probably appropriate, although not entirely so, because very much of what came to be understood as the framework for Mare Liberum didn't actually solidify, gel, coalesce, however you wish to describe it, until quite a long time into that 350 years. And indeed, one or two of the things that uh, emerged that seemed to indicate what that framework is or was didn't actually emerge, certainly in conventional law, until 1958. So it post-dated the end of the era that I'm suggesting that it was a part of. 
I look at that era, that 350 years, and it seems to me that the, the basic principle was that the seas should be unregulated and free for the use, essentially, let's be honest about it, free for the use of the major maritime imperial powers, essentially the European-based imperial powers, but not entirely as time moved on. Those, in, those imperial powers had a, a vested interest, a clear vested interest in maintaining their free use of the seas, and to a certain extent, it has to be said, excluding the use by others. Mary Liberum was the basic principle. Three areas of law, it seems to me, and you and please disagree with me because I'm always very happy to have somebody say that I'm, I've missed something out or I've got something wrong. But it seems to me that there were three areas of law that emerged, or three legal principles, three, three notions of law that emerged in that 350 years that gave legal substance or operationalised the notion of Mary Liberum. The first of these were, was the um, law of naval warfare. And, the law of na and, and that's not my subject today, so I'm not going to go banging on about that. But the law of naval warfare was fundamentally important. <laughs> These maritime empires spent a great deal of time fighting each other at sea as well as on land. Um, from the Anglo-Dutch wars in the middle of the 17th century onwards, I can trace a very significant series of major great power naval wars running from the middle of the 17th century, as I said, to 1939-1945. Um, there were a large number of them. And, of course, the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars were part of it, the Seven Years' War before that. Uh, the historians amongst you will be able to rattle off these probably better than I can. These were all major naval conflagrations that required some measure of regulation as far as the imperial powers themselves were concerned. And what you had um, it culminating in, in conventional terms, was the 1856 Paris Declaration, which basically outlined roughly uh, what we mean by economic warfare at sea, which is navies attacking other empires' economic activities on the oceans. And the oceans are very important in that sense because a very large amount of trade is carried on. Today it's well over 90% of world trade is carried in ships, something I find it quite remarkable I have to point out to a great many people. I would hazard a guess that every single person in this room today is wearing an item of clothing that's spent time in a container travelling across the Indian Ocean. One or two of you may prove to me that I'm wrong about that, but I certainly know that my shirt, uh, which um, was bought from a German street shirt shop, where I've been buying my shirts for 40-odd years. They were originally made in England, but they're not any longer. They're made in China, and they've spent time in a container travelling across the Indian Ocean. Trade is very, very important, and navies were instruments of their imperial powers' uh, policy, and one of the ways that they competed with one another in wartime was to attack each other's trade. So the, the, the major naval wars of the Grotian era were very important. Um, and navies and merchant shipping had a symbiotic relationship. 
navies and merchant shipping existed together and relied upon each other uh, for their existence and, uh, and their activities. I, as I said, this is not my subject today, so I won't say very much more about it. But importantly, part of the freedom of the seas was not only the freedom to use the seas for that warfare, but also for neutrals to carry on their trade. And that is what the neutrals were supposedly able to do, despite the fact that some of their uh, rival states were at war with one another. The notion that whatever else happens on the high seas, free trade for those not engaged in belligerency would continue peacefully, that was very important. The second legal principle, notion, call it what you will, is exclusive flag state jurisdiction. This was to do with the understanding that every sovereign and his or her uh, ships could ply the high seas um, reasonably freely without interference from any other sovereign. And the notion of free, exclusive, free, uh, ex exclusive flag state jurisdiction uh, became one of the um, three major principles framework, legal um, formulas that um, operationalise the freedom of the seas. Exclusive flag state jurisdiction also did not really materialise in any conventional sense until uh, the 20th century. It was included, for example, in the 1958 uh, Convention on the High Seas and again in the 1982 UN Convention. But until then, it had not been defined in any precise way. The third and final area of law that was of some importance was the law of sea piracy. And the reason that that was important was because there was a need to protect trade from uh, the activities, the illicit activities uh, of pirates. Non-state actors, if you like, in modern terminology, operating at sea, intent on uh, lining their own pockets principally, and, and the clearing out of piracy and piratical acts was an important part of what navies had to do as well as protecting their trade from other navies. Now this was the basic framework of the, of, of the law of the sea. Minimal regulation across the seas in general. The law of sea piracy, first promulgated conventionally in 1958 in the High Seas Convention. Exclusive flag state jurisdiction on the high seas, basically the only vessels that could interfere, and there are exceptions, the only vessels that can interfere with a ship on the high seas are, are warships, official ships of the flag state. And this seemed to work. It seemed to work until the middle of the 20th century. But since then, we've been undergoing really quite dramatic, profound change. Uh, when I first started studying the law of the sea seriously, it was literally back in the 1970s. And I have to say that, that some of the things that I'm now realising and some of the things that I'm going to say were not apparent to me at that point. Certainly there was clearly a move towards extending coastal state jurisdiction. And that was clearly one of the big issues at the, at the conference uh, wherever it was meeting around the world. But the, 
the simple fact is that a lot of the changes that were happening were consequent on things that had happened some years before. But they weren't yet fully materialised. And I'm going to run through one or two of these because I, I tend to divide the ocean environment into seven dimensions. There's a political dimension, there's a technological dimension, there's an economic dimension, uh, a social dimension, a physical dimension, a naval military dimension, and a normative dimension. Now, each one of those dimensions has been undergoing profound change. And the changes that have occurred have been you know, massively significant. And you've only got to think about this in general terms. Take yourself away from the precise subject of the law of the sea and look, for example, at global population levels. And we are talking about a global context here. Now, I'm terrible at remembering figures, so I wrote a few down, just to remind me. World population in 1804 was 1 billion. World population in 1974 was 4 billion, just as I was starting my naval career. It is today over 7 billion, and it's likely to be 9 billion by 2040. Now, the increase in population has been massive, and that has had an impact on the sea. It's had an, on, an impact on the sea because there are more people who are interested in the sea. There are lots of people living close to the sea. There are a lot of people depending on food from the sea. It was one of the reasons why fishing became a serious problem and the management of fish stocks became a serious problem. There was greater demand for them. It's my contention, I know that there have been fisheries disputes throughout the centuries. Fish, apart from odd selected local stocks were never under existential threat to the extent that they are today. They are now under serious existential threat. Indeed, fish stock, fish catch declined. It's now beginning to recover again. But there is a very, very serious problem about the management of fish stocks, not only caused by population, but also caused by the second of these dimensions, which is the technological dimension. It's very simply the case that until the middle-late 19th century, fishing, those who fished for fish, had to use their bare hands, largely, in order to bring their catches on board their ships, which were themselves powered by sail. And there have been, of course, transformations in propulsion systems, winches, electrical winches, and so on. It's now very much the case that the, I mean, the general an annual um, fish catch from North Sea herring, for example, from the middle of the 19th century onwards was between 50,000 50, and 200,000 tons. Generally speaking, these days, about 8,500,000 tons. And the, that sort of fish stock is fish for using vessels with sophisticated sonars, enormous nets, and in extraordinary fishing power. So fishing has changed. Technology has brought in a whole raft of, of new um, things to turn the uh, ocean environment into something quite different from what it used to be before. Um, shipping. I mentioned shipping as an economic factor. About half a billion tonnes of global trade in the middle of the 20th century. It is now uh, 8 billion tonnes. 
It is 16 times what it was in 1945-1950. It's four times what it was when I first went to sea in the early 1970s. Four times the amount of global trade on the seas. Um, that's quite a considerable increase. Um, there's a tremendous amount of change in every sense. And I'm not going to go through all of them because I'll take up far too much time. And I don't want to do that. The economic differences, clearly trade, uh, exploitation of, uh, of resources and so on is very important. The physical side of the environment, well, we're talking here about the environment as people, generally speaking, understand that phrase. The physical protection of the environment, uh, pollution, climate change, the effects of, for example, plastic bags on the oceans, significant impact on the ocean environment, and I include that in the physical. The naval element, well, I can go on about navies all afternoon. If you want me to, I won't bother to do that. There are, however, about four times as many navies today than there ever has been in the past. Um, there are, however, relatively fewer warships deployed by those big navies. The United States Navy today is a shadow of what it once was, and the Royal Navy most certainly is. There are, the Royal Navy is about a quarter of the size of the Navy that I first went to sea in uh, 40, 50 years ago. Um, now, the navies have important roles to play in enforcing law and ensuring stability <coughs> on the oceans. And this is why I'm, I'm leading into all of this and saying that the oceans have been uh, a profoundly shifting environment over a number of years because I'm leading into what I'm going to talk about in terms of human rights and the social dimension of the seas. The seas are undergoing considerable change and that change is so profound, I believe, that I'm getting close to actually saying something that some might regard as sacrilegious, almost. And that is that the agreement incorporated in the 1982 UN Convention could be argued to be getting close to unfit for purpose. Now that won't be obvious to many people and I wouldn't have said that quite that way not that long ago because there's no doubt that the 1982 Convention is a convention that is generally agreed. It's not much in dispute. There will be elements of it, and those of you who are studying that area of law will know better than I what those detailed problems are with it. But it's generally speaking considered to be a reasonably stable regime. It's a framework convention for a lot of other law that is developed, particularly that under the auspices of the International Maritime Organization in London. Um, it is, uh, it's not about to be renegotiated there is not to, about to be an UNCLOS 4. And I think we got that message, didn't we, Patricia, from the IMO rep in Reykjavik, although I'm not supposed to quote her because it was Chatham House Rules. But anyway, <laughs> take it from me, there is not a move afoot any time soon to renegotiate the 1982 UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. But I have serious problems with it, and my problems with it have been growing as I've been doing my research on this whole issue of ocean governance. Um, because not only am I writing my own book on this, but I'm also putting together what I hope will eventually emerge as the Oxford Handbook on Ocean Governance. 
And that's been an interesting process in and of itself because I've been having to look with my fellow editors at a number of different aspects of ocean governance. And each one that I look at, I discover I have some problems um, in placing it in the context of the convention as a fixed document with no prospect for change. This is something that you as lawyers, and if you're specialising on the law of the sea or ocean governance or anything in those sorts of related areas, I think you're going to have to grapple with. And you are at the beginning of your careers as I was in the early 1970s. Question. What is the state of ocean governance going to be in 40 or 50 years' time when you are reaching, as I am now, the end of your careers? It's a fascinating question to ask. I can't give you any answer to that question because I certainly couldn't have answered that question myself 40 years ago and predicted what the ocean environment was going to be like now in 2017 as I'm standing before you today. I'm not into prediction, although I've been in jobs where I was obliged to do a wee bit of it. I think it's a very imprecise it's certainly not a science. Let's say it's a, an imprecise art, or it's a lot of guesswork, largely. We don't know where it's going to go. I was at a lecture presentation the other day in, in Palace of Westminster on autonomous shipping. There is a move afoot amongst those who have the technical wherewithal and the commercial uh, ambition to introduce unmanned merchant ships into the oceans. Uh, now, if you take all those merchant ships, the 18,000, 20,000 container capacity container ships, Maersk uh, is a famous line at the moment that deploys container ships capable of carrying 18,000 containers. If you take those ships and you take all the manpower off them, and you run them using computers and satellites and GPS and so on and so forth, entirely from one container port to another, then you're dealing with a very different shipping industry from the shipping industry that you've got deployed today. I was down in the um, uh, London Gateway container terminal a few months ago. If you get the opportunity to go to something like that, please do go and see it, because that is the the landward end of the global shipping industry, the bulk of that trade that goes on today is going in container ships, that of it that is not liquid or, or bulk cargo. And they are quite remarkable places. You don't see people wandering around the jetties. Most of it is done by machine, by computer direction. Containers are all numbered. They're stowed in particular places on board the ships. They're moved around. They're landed. They're dealt with. They're put on lorries and they're taken away to wherever they've got to go to. It's a massively sophisticated international business. A couple of things have happened that are relevant to what I'm talking about in human rights terms. First of all, what has happened is that most of the merchant ships that we have on the oceans today are not registered in states that have navies. 
It used to be the case, remember what I said about the Groschen era from 1600 to 1950, it used to be the case that all the major shipping nations, the trading nations, principally but not entirely exclusively the European-based maritime powers, had not only large, fishing, large shipping fleets, they also had large navies. They had large navies to protect their shipping. And the revenue from the shipping paid for their large navies. So there was a genuinely symbiotic relationship between navies and shipping lines, shipping industries. That has gone completely. It no longer exists. The Marshall Islands, the third largest flag on the planet, has one inshore patrol boat. Now, remember what I said about the legal pillars of high seas freedom. One of those pillars was exclusive flag state jurisdiction. What does that actually mean? Well, we had an interesting time discussing precisely what that mean meant, and I don't think we came up with any ultimately firm conclusion, did we? In we'll have another meeting. We'll have another meeting. <laughs> we, we've suggested, this was under NATO auspices, and we all thought that it would be a fantastic idea next time to go to that clearly and very obviously NATO location of Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful thing about the international law business. You can go all over the world and do all sorts of wonderful things in wonderful places. But anyway, the, 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 the problem that you've got now is that navies and merchant fleets are not in any way connected. Tell me how you would suppose that if there was a problem on board a Marshall Islands registered ship, let's say the master is murdered by one of the other officers and the vessel is steaming across the Indian Ocean. Criminal jurisdiction, what is that? Who has criminal jurisdiction over that act? Enforcement jurisdiction rather than prescriptive jurisdiction. Well, I'll tell you who has the jurisdiction over it. The, the Marshall Islands government. Marshall Islands Courts has jurisdiction over that vessel. How is the Marshall Islands jurisdiction going to exercise that <coughs> on a vessel halfway across the Indian Ocean? Now, in theory, although I would hesitate to say in regular and effective practice, warships had a role in enforcing compliance with the law, including the criminal law, on board ships flying the flags of their states. But very few of the ships that are trading around the oceans today are flagged to states that have any capacity at all for enforcing even criminal law on board those vessels. It simply isn't possible. Now, the reason those flag states exist in the way that they do is twofold. Firstly, labour costs. The cost of labour was forcing British shipping owners, American ship owners, European ship owners, out of business because Filipino crews, to put it bluntly, are cheaper than British crews. And in order to employ entirely foreign crews, uh, you need to think very seriously about whether you've got the appropriate registration. Now, the business of crewing 
ships with particular nationalities of crews goes back as far as the Navigation Acts, which are a throwback to the early days of the Groschen era. You're trying to force, and it was part of the mercantilist economic arrangement of the maritime trading powers, maritime empires, the stipulation that the ships be manned largely by citizens of the state into which they are taking the goods. Although there was no ship registration in those days, there was this stipulation in the Navigation Acts that ships trading with Britain, for example, uh, must be manned by British seamen, must be owned by British owners. Um, the British registration, indeed any registration, it didn't really come into effect until the middle of the 19th century. So ship registrations are relatively new. Um, but once they did get hold, they were associated with major maritime powers. But from 1945 onwards, because the major maritime powers' shipping companies were being priced out of a competitive business, the international shipping business, and the international shipping business is very, very competitive, they found it necessary in order to remain competitive to flag themselves out to what were known as and what are frequently known as convenience registers or open registries. And there are, of the ten largest registries in the world, only one, and that is China, has anything remotely approaching a decent navy. The others don't. And navies used to regulate shipping fleets. You see where I'm coming from. The other uh, reason, of course, was the tax regime in the state in which the vessel, the, vessel uh, the shipping company was registered. So tax regimes have an effect on this as well, for those of you who are interested in the dynamics and the economics of the shipping industry. But it, I don't see any possibility of breaking this, frankly, at the moment, um, because the shipping companies will want to remain competitive. And exclusive flag state jurisdiction is something that is unlikely to be challenged seriously in the political sense in the International Maritime Organization in London, the UN specialized agency, that deals with these sorts of issues to do with the shipping industry. Don't, for those of you who are not aware, don't assume that the International Maritime Organization deals with everything to do with the sea. It is principally and foremost and almost exclusively concerned with international shipping. It's not interested in most other things. And, of course, the balance of power within the IMO is very much geared up to the flag states because it's the flag states that fund it. So, actually, in the IMO, that particular UN specialised agency, Liberia, the Marshall Islands and Panama are more powerful than Great Britain and the United States. So you have a very interesting political balance within the IMO. Those who pay the piper call the tune. And those who pay the piper in this particular case are the countries that have the largest shipping fleets under registry. How do you enforce law on those vessels? Well, that's a very interesting question. There are two types of law, it seems to me, and this is a very simplistic breakdown. There's the sort of law that everybody knows is completely wrong and is criminal. So if somebody murders somebody on board a ship or somebody is smuggling drugs or whatever that is contrary to the criminal law in the flag state, then that's a criminal matter and it needs to be stopped. 
There are other regulations that ships have to comply with, a lot of them relating to International Maritime Organization negotiated treaties, conventions, on ship safety and watchkeeping qualifications and um, pollution control and so on. These are regulatory breaches. <coughs> Most of the regulatory breaches can be enforced by what's known as port state jurisdiction. If you're running a ship into a port, the port will exercise its jurisdiction while you're alongside, because as those of you who've studied the law of the sea will realise that although the flag state has jurisdiction on a ship, when it goes into the internal waters or the ports of a coastal state, it, it places itself within the jurisdiction of the coastal state. So if a vessel is placing itself within the jurisdiction of the coastal state, then the port state, the coastal state for want of a better word, is able to exercise jurisdiction. So inspectors will go on board the ship to inspect the regulatory regime to see that that is being complied with. But that's not criminal law. It's, 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 it's a bunch of regulations. And those regulations are, tend to be complied with, even by the open registries, because if they're not complied with, the ship owners won't get insurance. And if they haven't got insurance, they won't be able to run their ships. So there's a lot of things coming into play here. Criminal law, on the other hand, well, that's difficult to enforce because even port states, when a ship is lying alongside, would be reluctant, invariably, to exercise criminal jurisdiction on board a foreign flag vessel. It's too much trouble in many cases. It depends what the offence is. And clearly, if we're talking here about murder and general mayhem, then the port state ought to be very interested in what is going on. The peace and good order of the coastal state is at risk. But other forms of offences they may well overlook. And one of those sorts of offences that they will overlook are breaches of human rights law. And now we get to the subject that I should, be, I should have been speaking about all this time, but I'm, I'm putting it in context, don't forget. What about human rights law? Well, the first thing, of course, to make point about make, make about human rights law is it didn't exist before the Second World War. I know we've got reference to the French Revolution and the American Declaration of Independence and the rights of man and all the rest of it. However, international you, you could not do an LLM option in international human rights law before the Second World War. It simply didn't exist. Human rights law, international human rights law, is a post-Second World War construction. Whatever we might want to say about the theoretical underpinnings of it, it didn't exist. And it's really taken off in so many ways in perhaps the last 40 or 50 years. And it's increasingly becoming important. It's one of the reasons, let's be honest about it, why the NGO Human Rights at Sea has suddenly appeared on the scene. Somebody asked David Hammond, the chief executive at the time of Human Rights at Sea, he wasn't working in that or that business at the time, he was simply a practicing barrister in London, they said, what do you know about human rights at sea, David? And he said, not much really, let me have a look at it and I'll get back to you. Which he did, and he said, you know, there's not really a lot on that. And just think about the problem here, because as you all know, it's states that breach human rights law. It's states that are responsible for breaches in human rights law. Who's the state on a vessel in the middle of the ocean that bears responsibility for the breach of human rights standards? Well, the quick answer, if 
the vessel is registered at all, is the flag state. How is the flag state monitoring human rights compliance on that vessel? And this is an extremely important question when you address the sort of problem that we have discovered, not just us, but others as well. Let's say a Thai-registered fishing boat, fishing off the fishing grounds off West Africa, operating to a mothership and offloading its catch to a vessel that transports its catch back to market. The fishing boat remains on the fishing grounds for three or four years, genuinely. It doesn't go into harbour. If there is a mechanical fault with it, it goes alongside the mothership and the fault is repaired. It refuels from the mothership. It doesn't go anywhere near a port. It's operating on those fishing grounds for three or four years at a time and it's manned by slave labour. Slaves who have been taken and conned into working on those fishing boats somewhere in the Far East and once they're on board they're taken off to sea and they have no way of escaping. We don't know how many slaves are currently working at sea in fishing boats. We assume that most of them that are, are working on board vessels that are involved in illegal, unregulated or unreported fishing, IUU fishing. And IUU fishing takes up an awful lot of the global fish catch. It's estimated, and it's a very, very vague estimate, that between 18 and 33% of the global fish catch is caught through IUU fishing. Now, who's doing what about modern slavery on Thai-registered fishing boats off the west coast of Africa? Well, I'll tell you who's doing something about it. Nobody. Because there isn't anybody there to do anything. The coastal states have thoroughly inadequate law enforcement, maritime law enforcement capabilities to patrol their EEZs anyway, and in many cases they're not bothering to do so. Those of them that are are only interested in the fishing activity, they're not interested in getting embroiled in some major international hassle over who and what, or where from where did the, the, the crew of the boat come from. Nothing is being done about it. Imagine what it must be like to sign up to do what you think is a perfectly reasonable but not an especially attractive job, to find yourself trapped on board a fishing boat for years at a time. Your family know nothing at all about where you are and what you're doing. And yet nobody within the international community is doing anything at all to stop it. The first thing we have to do, of course, is to raise awareness of it. And that is what the NGO, of which I'm a trustee, is trying to do. We're not going to be able to put a stop to it on our own, certainly. What we might be able to do is raise some awareness of it. But that's not where the human rights abuses stop. What about dubious labour practices on board the sorts of vessels that if you become successful lawyers you may be able to afford to spend two or three weeks sailing around the Caribbean on. Cruise liners. 
What about the working conditions of those who work below decks that the passengers never set eyes on? What's going on on board those vessels? None of them registered in the major maritime nations, all registered under open registries and never visiting the ports of those states in which they're registered. Who's checking on that? Who's making an effort to ensure that employment practices are adequate? And would the crews in any case be prepared to admit that they were not for fear of the consequences? They might find themselves abandoned, for example. One of the programmes that Human Rights at Sea has got running at the moment is a programming is a programme um, of awareness and looking after the interests of abandoned seafarers. Shipping companies of, of, of no great reputation will simply, if they have a crew member who's, for whatever reason it might be, is not uh, any longer required, will just drop them off the next time they go into a port, and it doesn't matter what port it is. The crew member may find themselves abandoned on a, on a dockside with no pay and no way of getting home. Uh, it's a very nasty place out there, the oceans. 70% of the Earth's surface, most of it, apart from the, the narrow 12-mile territorial strip around the coast, most of it not under the territorial jurisdiction of any state. It's a, it's a human rights vacuum. There is nothing out there. As somebody said uh, the other day, I'm not sure who it was that said this, it's, it's, a, it, 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 it's a zone of no consequence for those who breach the law. There are no consequences if you breach human rights law at sea in a ship and there's nobody there to enforce the human rights standards that you're breaching. And as some other phrase was used, it's the world's largest crime zone in many ways, because these are abuses, are criminal abuses. And I haven't, of course, even mentioned the problem of migration. I mentioned, of course, that world population had grown from 1 billion about 200 years ago to, what is it, 11 billion today? No, sorry, not 11 billion, what am I talking about? Uh, to about 7 billion today, and growing increasingly to 9 or 10 billion later this century. They are people who want to go to do things elsewhere on the planet from the place in which they were born. Now, they may be being trafficked. They may be going on their own decision, but suffering some rather dubious practices in the process of getting from A to B. We've had a, an intern, a young student from the Netherlands, at sea in a vessel off the Libyan coast over the course of this last summer. She is a PhD student just like most of you. And she has been dragging dead bodies out of the water of people who've been trafficked or been sent to their deaths, in many cases, on small boats off the Libyan coast. Now, of course, this is entirely wrong. I, I address it, it's what we call it human rights abuse. Well, of course, it, that's manifestly the case. Very few people globally are thinking about this problem. Very few people are doing anything to stop it. We have a modern slavery act in the United Kingdom and the Prime Minister herself, who was, of course, responsible for introducing the modern slavery bill 
few years ago when she was Home Secretary, is still apparently, and I, I genuinely believe this, she's very much engaged in the campaign to stop modern slavery within the UK. Well, that's great. And I applaud every ounce of effort that's put into it. And we've discussed this with Keith Highlands, the Modern Slavery Commissioner. We've also actually recently introduced the process of checking out fishing fleets in the UK. We recently gave the Northern Ireland, Ireland fishing fleet um, a clean bill of health. We do not believe there's any evidence of slavery there. But there is suspected slavery elsewhere in the British fishing fleet. Fishing in the UK EEZ. Labour coming in from outside the UK, being employed on British fishing boats. Something I never saw when I was a British Sea Fisheries officer between 1988 and 1991, I never saw foreign crews on board British fishing boats fishing in the UK EEZ, or the extended fishery zone as it was then. We now fear that there is modern slavery and evidence at sea in fishing boats. We just haven't yet pinned it down. When we do pin it down, of course, we'll try and put a stop to it. And we've got the backing of the Modern Slavery com uh, Commissioner to do that. We've done a survey of Northern Ireland. We think that Northern Ireland fleet, at their request, they asked the NGO to do this. We believe the Northern Ireland fishing fleet is clean. I've ranged back in time, back over history, talked about the sort of processes of ocean governance to a degree. I hope I've raised some awareness of some of the things you need to think about, how complex this issue actually is. And I've mentioned one or two, but it's, it, it is the tip of an iceberg, really. There's a great deal that <coughs> needs to be thought about human rights compliance on the oceans of the world. There is a lot of breach of human rights standards. And really, genuinely, very few people are doing anything at all about it. And certainly, almost no governments are. Um, it's, a, it's a fact. And it's one that we're very concerned about. Now, Human Rights at Sea, as I said, was the inspiration of David Hammond, uh, this barrister friend of mine, former naval barrister, Royal Marine. Uh, he established it because he believed there was a massive gap in the market and there is. If you look at, and this is not a, you know, we're not in any competition with organisations like Human Rights Watch. In fact, I'm going to Human Rights Watch's annual dinner in a couple of weeks' time. I've been working with them on something completely different. Um, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, they have got their work cut out looking at what's going on within states without also focusing on the oceans. And they will admit that, yeah, this is an area that they haven't looked uh, very much at. But we're trying to plug that gap by saying, let's raise awareness of human rights abuses at sea. Uh, these are serious problems. There are serious deficiencies in the maintenance of human rights standards. And actually, I don't know what the answer is. You see, it's easy to say, well, let's get rid of exclusive flag state jurisdiction and let's have international enforcement on the high seas. Politically, how do you get there? How do you achieve that objective? It's very difficult for me, with my limited understanding of things in general, to come up with a way of achieving that simple measure. Even though I see exclusive flag state jurisdiction as a throwback to the previous Grotian era, 
and therefore no longer appropriate for the modern ocean environment, I actually don't see a way of getting rid of it. If you can think of a way of getting rid of exclusive flag state jurisdiction and rendering ships on the high seas subject to some sort of international policing, enforcement and compliance mechanism, then hey, let us know and we'll publicise it. And that is, of course, ships that are registered in states. What about those that are not registered anywhere or are fraudulently registered? I was reading the other day of a vessel that has been illegally fishing off the New Zealand coast, as it happens. It's been re-registered 12 times in two years under 11 different names and 11, 12 different registries. So as soon as it's caught doing something illegal under one name and registry, the owner immediately reflags it, renames it, and deploys it somewhere else. So it's very difficult to even track where it's been and what it's been doing. The New Zealand authorities have actually tracked that one, and they can tell you exactly what it's been up to. It's actually owned by an organisation in Spain. We have some bizarre registries around as well. There's a Mongolian registry. Now, Mongolia is not that known for being a major maritime power. But a lot of the private military security company armories floating around in the Indian Ocean were registered in Mongolia. Interesting, isn't it? The Marshall Islands and Panamanian registries are run out of offices in the United States. They're commercial enterprises, effectively, with the Marshall Islands and Panamanian governments skimming off profit from what is essentially a commercial organisation. The Sierra Leone registry is run out of an office in Cyprus, which is why you get so many Sierra Leone registered ships in the Mediterranean. I could go on. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop. You can ask me some questions. Thank, Thank you, you so very much, much indeed. For the presentation.